if you look at magnesium, for example, when the RDA was last updated in 1997, since then, the average body weight for men has increased by like 30 pounds. And the average body weight for women has increased by like 25 pounds. And a paper was published last year that said, hey, if we go back and reevaluate the RDA based on these new average body weights, it's going to go up by like 300 milligrams a day. Hello, my friend. Today, we're talking about nutrient deficiencies and what they are, why you care, how you're going to see this presenting in your body. I've gotten really deep into this in my own practice, working with my one-on-one clients and really taking them through what this looks like and how it affects our vitality. In today's conversation, we talk about how the RDA for specific nutrients are way too low, way, way too low, and what we should be aiming for instead. We're talking about how to shift your diet, types of supplements to avoid and totally go for, whether or not we need supplements in certain circumstances, and so much more. Our guest today is Chris Kresser. He's the co-founder of the California Center for Functional Medicine, the founder of Kresser Institute, the host of the top-ranked health podcast, Revolution Health Radio, the creator of chriscresser.com and the New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Cure and Unconventional Medicine. He is one of the most respected clinicians and educators in the fields of functional medicine and ancestry health and has trained over 2,000 clinicians and health coaches from over 50 countries in his unique approach. Chris was named one of the 100 most influential people in health and fitness by greatest.com and has appeared as a featured guest on Dr. Oz, Time, The Atlantic, NPR, Fox and & Friends, and other national media outlets. So in today's conversation, Chris also mentioned a URL that I'm going to share with you now just in case you miss it. So it's like really spelled out for you. It's cresser.co slash nutrients. That's K-R-E-S-S-E-R dot co slash nutrients. And on that page, he provides a ton of information about overall nutrient deficiency and what you can do about it. So if you head on over to that page, you can download that free guide. Okay, let's get in to it, shall we? Hey, my name is Leanne Vogel. I'm fascinated with helping women navigate how to eat, move, and care for their bodies using a low-carb diet. I'm a small-town holistic nutritionist turned three-time international best-selling author turned functional medicine practitioner, offering telemedicine services around the globe to women looking to better their health and stop second-guessing themselves. I'm here to teach you how to wade through the wellness noise to get to the good stuff that'll help you achieve your goals. We're supporting your low-carb life beyond the if-it-fits-your-macros conversation. Hormones, emotions, relationship to your body, workouts, letdowns, motivation, blood work, detoxing, metabolism. I'm providing the tools to put your motivation into action. Think of it like quality time with your bestie mixed with a little med school so you're empowered at your next doctor visit. Get ready to be challenged and encouraged while you learn about your body and how to care for it better. This is the Keto Diet Podcast. Hey, Chris, how's it going today? It's going great, man. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so glad to have you on the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Yes. So today we're going to talk a lot about nutrients. And before we kind of delve into this whole topic, we have a whole bunch of things we want to cover. Can we just do a high level overview of nutrient deficiency and how you kind of got into this space? Yeah. So I've been treating patients as a functional medicine clinician for 15 years. And for the last eight years, been training functional medicine clinicians through my adapt practitioner training program. We've trained over 800 doctors and other healthcare providers in over 30 countries around the world. So I've seen a lot of patients myself and I've worked a lot of patient cases through, you know, guiding and training clinicians, so many clinicians, and I've seen these people from all over the world, you know, both developed countries and developing countries. And I would say initially when I started treating patients, I probably had a similar view on nutrient deficiency as everybody else, which is, oh, this is mostly something that affects people in the third, you know, in third world developing countries. It's not really an issue anymore. In the industrialized world, we've sort of conquered nutrient deficiency. Look, nobody has scurvy or rickets or pellagra anymore, so it's not really a concern. But as I progressed in my career and saw more and more lab results coming back that were revealing widespread nutrient deficiencies, even in people who were following really healthy diets... And as I began to correct those nutrient deficiencies through a combination of both diet and supplementation and see sometimes miraculous changes just from correcting those basic lack of essential nutrients that we needed, you know, like longstanding problems that nobody had been able to figure out that had been, you know, there for years or even decades starting to resolve, I knew that there was something missing from the typical understanding of nutrient status and nutrient deficiency. So I'm kind of a research geek for those who are familiar with my work. So I did a super deep dive into the scientific literature on this topic and and also to prepare curriculum for my training, you know, for the clinicians that I was training. And what I saw was pretty shocking because right there in front of us, the whole time was this wide body of literature indicating that most Americans and Consequently, most people around the world are deficient, not just in one nutrient, but several micronutrients. And these deficiencies are not frank deficiencies that would lead like, to an acute hospitalization type of event like scurvy or rickets or you know, something that could be fatal in the short term. And in some ways, it's actually worse that way because they're insidious. And they're not something that raise a red flag right away that a doctor or even the person themselves can recognize as being the problem. Instead, they play out over years or decades, and they are like the great imitator. So nutrient deficiencies can contribute to virtually every complex chronic disease that is, you know, killing us slowly. these days. And most people have no idea that nutrient deficiencies are either the primary cause of their problem or one of the significant causes of their problem. So I really now have come to believe that it's one of the greatest epidemics that we face, but I call it a silent epidemic because hardly anybody is talking about it. Even in our space, land, like functional integrative medicine communities, there's a lot of talk 
of course, good talk about macronutrient ratios and then, you know, low carb diet versus higher carb diet and now keto and carnivore. And, you know, there's talk about mold and Lyme disease and, you know, autoimmunity and all of these conditions, which are super important. But what if there was one thing that's underlying all of those approaches foundationally that can move the needle for most people? That's what I'm interested in. That's why I'm so passionate about this topic. Yes. And it's something that I've become quite passionate about also, very similar to you in that being in practice for 15 years, only the last couple of years, I'm like, wait, if we coach up vitality with proper nutrient absorption and proper nutrients, a lot of people just get better on their own and they get to those places where a lot of their symptoms, like you're saying, are starting to decrease and their body is stronger to be able to even do like deeper protocols. Like you mentioned Lyme, mold, those deeper things where if you're lacking in specific nutrients, it's going to be really challenging for you to detoxify mycotoxins from the body. So I couldn't agree with you more. When it comes to, you mentioned a little bit ago on the changes that you see, what are some things like if a woman is listening now and she's like nutrient deficiencies, I don't think so. I'm having a hard enough time making sure that I'm eating enough protein. What are some of the things that we can see that might point to there being a nutrient deficiency? Or would you say if you have a pulse, then probably you have a nutrient deficiency of some sort? It's almost that, really. I mean, because if you look at what the the Linus Pauling Institute, which has done pioneering work on this, they're actually here in Oregon, I think through Oregon State, and they have done much more in-depth analysis of nutrient intake in the United States than anybody else. And for example, their data shows that almost 100% of people don't get enough potassium, don't get enough choline. Vitamin D is probably close to 95%. Magnesium is close to 95%. Vitamin E is 89%. So, you know, we're not, we're not talking about, oh, yeah, it's like two in a hundred or, you know, five out of 20 people. We're talking about the vast majority of people who are dealing with at least one, if not several nutrient shortcomings. So, yes, I think most people can assume they're dealing with this. But there are some symptoms that are pretty common in people who are nutrient deficient. I would say fatigue and particularly unexplained fatigue, like, hey, I'm getting enough sleep or at least I'm in bed for enough time, but I'm still waking up feeling tired. I don't have enough energy to get get through the day. I'm having those afternoon energy crashes. Difficulty sleeping actually is a big sign of nutrient deficiency because in order for the hormones that help to with sleep onset and sleep duration to be produced, we need nutrients. Problems with performance and recovery. So like if your athletic performance is declining or you're in the gym, you're not doing as well as you used to, it's taking you longer to recover. A lot of times people will just say, oh, you're getting older, you know, welcome to the club. But Part of that process often as we get older is decreased nutrient absorption or decreased nutrient intake because we're not eating as much nutrition as we used to. So that can be a big one. Hormone imbalances are, you know, I just referred to them in the context of sleep, but all of the male and female sex hormones, each of the enzymatic pathways that are involved in hormone production, all of those enzymes require micronutrients to function properly. So if you don't have enough micronutrients, those enzymes don't function, and those steps in that process of hormone production are not completed. And so you can get hormone deficiencies 
or just uh, blocks in those hormone production cycles because of those nutrient deficiencies. Metabolic issues are huge with nutrient deficiencies. So there's that's probably one of the most robust areas of the scientific research on nutrient deficiency and the effect on disease is in, in metabolic conditions like type 2 diabetes, hypertension, metabolic syndrome. There's so many nutrients that we know where contribute to metabolic health and it, where if you're deficient in those nutrients, you're going to have a really hard time maintaining normal weight, maintaining normal blood sugar, maintaining normal blood pressure. So, of course, the most commonly known ones and the biggest ones probably are vitamin D and magnesium and potassium in the metabolic category, but there are many others as well. Cardiovascular issues. So we're suffering from that, you know, seven of 10 people who die of a heart condition, a heart attack or a cardiovascular event. And there are many different nutrients that are required for cardiovascular health. I think another big one, and then I'll stop because I could just probably keep going for the rest of the podcast, but cognitive and brain, you know, brain health. So cognitive and mood. So brain fog, like just not being able to concentrate as well as you used to. Memory starting to fade. Difficulty with word recall. Again, like so often these are just attributed to aging. But why? You know, why is it that our brain doesn't function as well as we get older? Nutrient deficiency has been shown over and over in countless studies to be a major contributor to poor cognitive function and also depression and anxiety and other mood disorders. There are lots of nutrients required to produce the neurotransmitters that help our brains function properly and help regulate our mood. And just as in the same way with the hormone issues we talked about, all of those enzymatic pathways involved in neurotransmitter production require enzyme or nutrients as cofactors. So it's true that macronutrients are critical and carbohydrates and fat depending on what you eat, provide the energy we need. But that energy doesn't have anywhere to go or anything to do if the micronutrients that help convert that energy into all of the things that need to happen in the body are not present. And so I think that's what's happening now for a lot of people is, you know, there's a a saying that I will sometimes use that we're often well-fed, but undernourished. So In many cases, we've got plenty of calories or energy, but we don't have the nutrition that we need to convert those calories into the important processes that help us to feel vital and alive. Vitamin C-based foods are kind of like severely lacking on the ketogenic diet. It's not impossible to get enough, but it's definitely a challenge. Extreme fatigue, weakness, fluttering heartbeat, shortness of breath, headache, dizziness, or lightheadedness, cold hands, feet, inflammation of your tongue, brittle nails. These are all signs of low iron. And by supplementing with vitamin C, we can actually absorb the iron from all the yummy foods that we're eating on our ketogenic diet. Sitting on the lower end of your normal iron level can deliver some of these symptoms and it isn't pleasant. Coupled with the immune boosting component of vitamin C, you really can't go wrong with this one-two punch in your ketogenic diet. And why Paleo Valley Essential C? Well, it's been third-party lab tested as the most powerful 100% natural vitamin C product on the market today. It contains not one, but three of the most concentrated natural sources of vitamin C, 
amla berry, camu camu berry, and unripe aceola cherry, the most potent source of natural vitamin C on earth. It's 120 times higher than that found in an orange. Each nutrient-packed serving delivers 750% of your RDI of vitamin C, an amount meant to help you thrive, not just survive. Most other vitamin C supplements are derived from GMO corn and only contain one fraction of the vitamin, ascorbic acid. Paleo Valley Essential C Complex contains the entire spectrum with absolutely no synthetic vitamin C, just organic superfoods. You can head on over to paleovalley.com slash keto for 15% off your order. Again, that's paleovalley.com slash keto. Yes, completely. As somebody, you know, you mentioned potassium. I always kind of poo-pooed potassium of like, I get enough with my diet. I'll eat an avocado a day. And when I started really focusing on potassium, my the function of my thyroid via labs has gotten... I have a different thyroid lab. You could look at post and pre potassium and look at the thyroid. You think it was a different person. (laughs) So I can attest to just that single nutrient being absolutely essential. And now when I go without it or I don't prioritize it, I can really feel a difference. And so I definitely, I'm totally on the same page as you. I think the next question that so many people will probably have at this point is why is this happening? You talked a little bit about not eating as much. I would imagine that perhaps a lack of hydrochloric acid due to a zinc deficiency or maybe due to stress affecting our stomach acid diet, you know, we can maybe talk about carnivore in a little bit and how that could kind of lead into it. Or if we're manipulating macros too much, maybe that can cause some nutrient deficiencies. Maybe even to, we know that metals displace minerals. And so if you're drinking really poor quality water, I would imagine that over time, you're probably going to displace some of those key minerals. Am I kind of on the right track? And like, where are the key pieces that we need to be thinking about as to why this is happening and what the root causes are? Yeah. So there are many. I'm going to focus on maybe the top three or four, and maybe some of the others will come out in the course of the conversation as well. The first cause, which probably doesn't apply much to your audience, but it's worth mentioning because it is the primary cause, is that the food that we're eating now is devoid of nutrients for the most part. You know, 60% of the calories the average American gets come from highly processed and refined foods like flour and seed oils and sugar which have almost no nutritional value in them at all. So if the majority of our calories that we're eating are so-called empty calories with no nutrition, that's the biggest issue by far. Now, I don't talk about that too much because most of the podcasts I go on to are people, you know, the people listening to them are not people who are eating those kinds of foods on a regular basis, or at least they're trying not to and they're aware of the problem. But you know, wherever you fall on that spectrum, the way I like to think about it is like we should be maximizing the nutrient density of every bite of food that we put into our mouth. And the more we do that, the more likely it is that we'll get closer to meeting our nutrient needs. The second issue is decline in soil quality. So this is one that unfortunately affects even those of us who are eating a healthier diet or trying to eat a healthier diet. There's just been significant changes in the microbiome of the soil over the past few decades. And people will, I'm sure, have heard of how changes in our own microbiome can interfere with nutrient absorption, 
which is another cause, by the way, of low nutrient status. But in the soil, the same thing happens because of our increased use of chemical fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides, glyphosate, industrialization of agriculture, where we have this huge monocrops and you know huge machines that we use to till fields. All of that disrupts the microbiome of the soil and the vegetables are, and fruits and nuts and seed, everything that grows in the soil is not able, those plants are not able to extract the same level of nutrition nutrients from the soil that they used to be able to because of that disrupted microbiome of the soil. So studies have shown declines in minerals and vitamins of anywhere from 20 to 50% plus just over the last 50 years. So that's a profound change. And there's you know one line that really stood out in a study that I read that was, we'd have to eat eight oranges today to get the same level of nutrition that our grandparents ate, got from eating a single orange, which is just crazy, right? I mean, that's two generations and that's a profound drop of nutrition just in a single fruit over that period of time. So that's a big one. Another one is the increase of in environmental toxins in the food supply. This is also a sad one because even when people are doing the right thing, my patients are you know, like eating a healthy diet, it's something that's very difficult to avoid because, you know, even what we eat organic foods and things like that, there's certainly lower concentrations of those things in those foods, but those toxins, you know, there's not like a hard barrier between a field that is organic, you know, you're growing with organic practices and then an invest, you know, one that's not right next door, you know, and inevitably these chemicals, they're in the air, they're in the water, they're getting into our food and they're getting into us as evidenced by many, many different studies. And the significance from a nutrient perspective is that a lot of these compounds like heavy metals or glyphosate, organic compounds, they bind to minerals, or you could look at it the other way around and say minerals bind to them, and then we don't absorb them anymore. And so we can develop deficiencies that way. The last thing I'll mention is chronic disease itself actually has a double whammy effect on nutrient status. It increases the demand for nutrients. As you can imagine, if, if we have a chronic disease, that, that's a stressor for the body. So it actually increases the need for nutrients because it's putting stress on the body. And then the second thing is most chronic diseases have been shown to decrease nutrient absorption. So that's not just true for gastrointestinal diseases, it's true for obesity, metabolic conditions, and many other conditions. So that, And the problem there is if six of 10 Americans now have at least one chronic disease and four in 10 have multiple chronic diseases, you have the majority of the population are dealing with a chronic condition that impacts their nutrient status in, in two ways. So when you layer all that together, the bad news is that it's very challenging to maintain adequate nutrient status in that kind of environment, even when you're doing the right thing. Yeah, completely. Kind of discouraging on the orange situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, what am I supposed yeah. to do with that? I can't possibly w- eat WTF. oranges. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's where I want to spend the rest of our conversation is we've covered kind of the base of what the issue is. Now let's talk about the doing, right? So that we're not leaving on a discouraged note of, okay, great. So like, there's really nothing I can do, it sounds like. I think the first question I have for you is, 
do we need to test this? Would you recommend certain types of tests to determine what nutrients are needed? Or is that not the route to take? So testing can be helpful, but there are some really big caveats. So first of all, most primary care clinicians are not very well trained in how to test for nutrient status. It's just not a part of their standard training. And it's not something they're educated in unless they have pursued that separately. The second problem is even if they are well trained in it, most insurance companies (laughs) for some bizarre reason, that's a different conversation, but they are not covering tests. It's just insane because if they did, they could identify future problems that they're going to end up paying a lot more money to treat in the future. But that's not how insurance companies and our medical system thinks at this point, unfortunately. So a lot of people end up paying out of pocket for these tests and they can be very expensive. The third problem, even if you can get past those first two, is that contrary to popular belief, in some circles, there is no single panel that you can order that will magically assess all of your different nutrient levels. And the reason for that is that different nutrients need to be assessed in different ways. So for example, magnesium primarily is found in the tissues. And so if you do a serum magnesium test, less than one half of 1% of total magnesium is in the serum in your blood at any given time because it's stored in the tissues. So that's not actually a very good representation of what your magnesium status is. To really get it, you need to do like a buccal swab where you're collecting cellular material from your cheek and send that into a very specialized lab who for $300 will you know, tell you how much intracellular magnesium you have. You know, that's one nutrient. So nobody, it's just not practical to do that with so many other nutrients. Other nutrients, selenium, for example, the best way to assess long-term selenium status is toenail clippings. Hair can be good for selenium and iodine and some other minerals as well. You've got urine being somewhat more accurate for like more recent iodine intake. You have nutrients like vitamin K2, which we still don't really have a good way of assessing uh, its status. Sometimes you can look at carboxylation or the activity of vitamin K2-dependent enzymes, but that's sort of an indirect way of looking at it. Calcium is a notorious example. Calcium needs to be maintained in a very narrow range in the serum because if it goes too high or too low, we die. (laughs) So... The body will do everything it possibly can to maintain calcium in that narrow range, including if calcium intake in the diet is low, pulling calcium out of the bones in order to maintain that serum calcium level, which is why you get osteopenia or osteoporosis if you don't eat enough calcium. So if you measure serum calcium and it's normal, all that tells you is you're not dead or on the way to the hospital. It doesn't tell you what your calcium intake is like or whether you're getting enough of it. So, you know, those are just a few examples, but it's very problematic. And it means that for most average people who are listening to this show, testing is not a very viable route to figuring this out. You know, if you are working with a functional medicine provider who's aware of all of what I just said and can do the proper assessments, it's awesome, 100%. 
But I think we both know that, you know, the number of percentage of people that have access to that and can afford to do that is very low. Yeah. Very small amount of people. Okay. So testing, meh, we'll put that on the shelf. Yeah. Are we thinking? That's a much quicker summary of what I said. <laughs> I always Appreciate find that. like my job is to summarize <laughs> for those that are listening yeah. and that's where I excel. So you get into the nitty gritty. I will summarize testing meh. Okay. Supplementation. Should we be supplementing? Is a multi enough? Should we be doing individual nutrients? If we don't know what nutrients we're low in, is a supplement maybe a bad idea for certain nutrients that we may be getting too much of? Well, let me say, you know, just extending our testing conversation a bit, there are, of course, certain nutrients that are relatively easy to test, affordable, and are covered by insurance, vitamin D being the most obvious. Like pretty much every primary care provider now is or should be testing vitamin D. It's covered by insurance. It's a no-brainer to get that. Often they will add things like magnesium, sometimes B12 or folate or iron will be tested. So you should get the tests that are available and that are relatively easy to interpret. And if those are low, then absolutely, you know, you, you need to address those individually. However, going back to your more general question, this is something that I've changed my mind on over the years, actually. When I first started out, I was pretty hardcore about like, we should meet all of our nutrient needs through food. And I still stand by that statement if you focus on the operative word being should. We should be able to, in a perfect world, meet all of our nutrient needs through food. That's the world I would prefer to live in. I would rather just be able to eat food and not worry about it and not take supplements. I mean, who likes taking supplements? I certainly don't. Do not. Do not. Yeah, definitely not. And to be honest, I think I was a bit slow to realize the extent of the problem because of my holding on to that ideal position of like, this is... I want it to be this way. It actually really is this way, but I'm hanging on to it being this other way because that's what I want. And now what I would say is because of what I've seen in you know almost 15 years of clinical practice, eight years of training doctors, having reviewed literally thousands of lab tests through my own practice and then reviewing case studies in the clinician training, and seeing how many people are nutrient deficient, and then reading the scientific literature and seeing how many people are nutrient deficient, and then seeing the results of restoring adequate nutrient status through supplementation. My position now is that most people probably need to supplement with at least some nutrients in order to get to the, at the optimal level of nutrition. And then I want to like briefly pause and go off on this tangent because it's very relevant. We haven't even talked about what the optimal level of nutrition is for these nutrients. And that's something that there's a lot of misunderstanding about. We have the RDA, right? The recommended dietary allowance. What most people don't know is that this was originally created in World War II as a way of determining how to make rations for soldiers that were fighting in World War II. So the, the question was, how do we keep these soldiers alive? with these rations? How do we make sure that there's just enough nutrients in there so that they can do their job? The question was not, what is the optimal level 
of each of these nutrients? That's a different question. It was how do we give them enough nutrients that their bodies will function during this wartime challenge? Since then, some of the RDAs have been updated. Some of them have not. And they're always based on things like body weight, which, guess what, has changed a lot over time. (laughs) So if you look at magnesium, for example, when the RDA was last updated in 1997, since then, the average body weight for men has increased by like 30 pounds. And the average body weight for women has increased by like 25 pounds. And a paper was published last year that said, hey, if we go back and reevaluate the RDA based on these new average body weights, it's going to go up by like 300 milligrams a day or 250 milligrams a day in the case of women. And already most Americans are falling short on that previous totally outdated and ineffectual RDA. So that's an example of how these RDAs that we're measuring nutrient deficiencies against are in and of themselves totally inadequate. And if we actually raise the bar to where they should be, then even more people would be even more deficient in these nutrients. So that's another reason for me that I've come to believe that supplementation, sadly, for people like me who and you who don't enjoy taking supplements is just a necessary I'm not going to call it an evil because I'm grateful that we have the opportunity to do it and you know which is unique somewhat in the history of humans but you know it's the reality that we're living in now and so my position is like it's better to accept that reality and respond appropriately than just like keep putting my head in the sand and wishing <laughs> wishing we lived in a different world which I still do sometimes <laughs> Yeah, just like cover the ears and go into a dark corner. <laughs> I'm not in the end. It's so true. It can get uh, yeah, overwhelming. It, it really, really can. It really can. I know that I believe the RDA for sodium is like 2,300 milligrams. I know for myself personally, if I don't have around seven or 8,000 milligrams, I'm not okay. And so, you know, even looking at that simply could be something that I'm sure a lot of listeners, especially on the ketogenic diet can relate to even in a different state. Like in the case of ketosis, some of those nutrients are going to be different. Like the sodium, potassium, the magnesium are going to be likely a higher amount that you need depending on the metabolic state that you're in. So I love that you brought that into the summary. How important are the specific type of nutrients? Like you talked about testing with B12. Another marker that I find really helpful is MMA for testing B12, but good luck getting a doctor to get that on your requisition. But like if if you find that you are low in B12 or you mentioned folate being one of the ones we can test for, there are different forms. Should we be concerned about the different forms of different nutrients or is that not a concern? Absolutely. In most cases, it's a concern. It's not... There are certain nutrients where it's less of a concern and certain nutrients where it's much more of a concern. So a lot of the B vitamins are, it's generally pretty important for many people to take the more active methylated forms. So that could, that, that methylcobalamin for B12, 5-MTHF for folate, even the active forms of B2 and B6, like P5P uh, for B6 and R5P for riboflavin have uh, active forms of B1, actually. So that's important with the B vitamins. 
with vitamin A. It's important. So you have carotene, uh, beta carotene, which is the precursor form of vitamin A. That's the, found in a lot of brightly colored fruits and vegetables, like red peppers or carrots. That's what gives them that color, actually. And again, in a perfect world, those carotenes can get converted into retinol, which is the active form of vitamin A. But some people, in fact, quite a few people are very inefficient at making that conversion. So they might still end up with a retinol deficiency if they're only eating beta carotene containing foods and no foods that contain preformed retinol, which are primarily animal foods. So this can explain why some people struggle with a vegetarian or vegan diet. They're primarily eating these precursor nutrients and they're not able to convert those into active forms. Like vitamin K1 is another example of that. It's a precursor to K2. K1 has its own benefits too, but if you're only eating K1 and no forms you know, of K2, then you might end up not getting enough K2 and that can cause cardiovascular issues or issues with bone health. You know, we could go on, but that's the gist of it is that very often the form of the nutrient is important because the active forms are really more involved in the, in the metabolic processes in the body. And if you don't have those active forms, then you're not going to actually get the full value of that nutrient. And so when you're supplementing, it's often better to just take the active form so that you're not relying on your body to do those conversions, which could have been a problem in the first place. The other thing is with supplements, just the quality and how the nutrient is derived. You know, so for example, cyanocobalamin is a cheaper synthetic form of B12. And for some people, it's fine. For others, it's problematic. Folic acid is less active form of folate, the active form. And some people, especially people with single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs in MTHFR-related genes have trouble metabolizing folic acid, and they can end up with a lot of unmetabolized folic acid in their blood. And that actually has been shown in some studies to increase the risk of cancer. So you get a lot of situations where the synthetic forms of the nutrients are either ineffective or in some cases even problematic. In other cases, I don't think it matters as much. Like ascorbic acid, for example, which is uh, vitamin C, it gets a bad rap online sometimes, but when you look at the research literature, it's like it's used in almost every study that has shown vitamin C benefits. Guess what form is used? Ascorbic, Ascorbic acid. <laughs> and so I'm like, somebody show me how this can be a huge problem when all of these studies are indicating that ascorbic acid is associated with all of these benefits. So... Yeah, I think that's an area that's not a, a huge one. Also, vitamin D3, just standard D3 preparations appear to work quite well. All of the studies on the benefits of D3 use those standard preparations. I don't think you need super fancy like liposomal forms of vitamin D because from the data we have, it just seems to work pretty well. So yeah, it's a question of like, where do you apply most people don't have unlimited resources, right? So, and even like for me, as I'm formulating a supplement, I'm thinking like, where do we apply the resources where they're needed most? You know, so like I'm going to use ascorbic acid and just standard form of vitamin D3 because 
that's the research shows that's fine. But I'm for sure going to use methylated forms of B vitamins because I know from research and clinical experience that that's going to make a huge difference for a lot of people. So that's kind of how I think about it. Yes, completely, completely. I've never understood the ascorbic acid situation. So I'm glad you touched on that. We know that we lose muscle as we age and that this loss massively affects our ability to function. Like I'm talking basic tasks here. Muscle is important for protecting our joints and also keeping our metabolism revving. Basically, you want muscle. And unfortunately, a lot of us just don't prioritize muscle maintenance or see it as an importance. And you may also be cringing at the idea of going to the gym and being able to maintain that muscle consistently. Yes, active moving is super good. And there's really nothing like it when it comes to the mood boost of pumping iron. <laughs> so when I share about Urolithin A, I am not saying just to do this and you can maintain your muscle without movement. Well, like I am saying that because Urolithin A does do that. But I think pairing Urolithin A with exercise is likely the best path forward. So I started taking a product called MitoPure to boost my performance and improve muscular strength. And MitoPure has 500 milligrams per serving of urolithin A, a postbiotic shown to have major benefits to significantly increasing muscle strength and endurance with no other change in lifestyle. Yes, you heard that right. I just said that it has major benefits to significantly increase muscle strength and endurance with no other change to lifestyle. It gives your body the energy it needs to optimize its cellular power grid through boosted mitochondrial health without changes to lifestyle or diet. Now imagine what it could do with your low carb diet and a walking goal or a lifting goal a couple of times per week. It took me a long time, like a couple of months to introduce MitoPure to my day because it's so strong. Every time I took it, I almost had too much energy, so I really had to titrate up. MitoPure is the first product to offer a precise dose of urolithin A to upgrade mitochondrial function, increase cellular energy, and improve muscle strength and endurance. They've created three ways to get your daily dose of 500 milligrams of urolithin A in their product, MitoPure. They've got a delicious vanilla protein powder that combines muscle building protein with the cellular energy of MitoPure. Now this product does contain whey protein. And then they have a berry powder that easily mixes into smoothies or just about any drink. This is dairy free. And finally the soft gels, which is what I prefer because it's just easier. This is also dairy free. I love the starter pack idea though. If you can handle the dairy, the three forms of MitoPure to play around with which which one is your favorite? Top notch. So Timeline, the creators of MitoPure, is putting together a sweet little offer for you, 10% off your first order. So if you go to timelinenutrition.com slash KDP and use the code KDP, you'll get 10% off your order. Again, that's timelinenutrition.com slash KDP. I recommend trying their starter pack with all three formats and picking out your best format. Again, that's timelinenutrition.com slash KDP. 
So we've talked a little bit about supplementation. I kind of want to end our conversation talking about the diet piece. I know we talked about oranges being literally pointless, not actually, but not not as powerful as they were two two, uh, decades ago, I believe you said. So what are some of the things that we can do understanding that listeners of the show are already looking at our diet, we're managing our macros, we're prioritizing these certain things. What should we prioritize when it comes to the foods that we're eating? What should we steer away from? If you can touch a little bit on carnivore and some of the pieces around that about no plant foods, because let's face it, plants have nutrients. So what should we be doing when it comes to diet to support this overall? Yeah, so I will answer that question in as much brevity as I can, given the time constraints, but I'll also just direct people to cresser.co slash nutrients. I have a free ebook on nutrient maximizing nutrient density of your diet, and that is, you know, 30 pages of answering this question because <laughs> it's a lot. But I believe, and I think the research supports this, that a combination of plant and animal foods is best for most people because... Animal foods are the richest source of a lot of the essential nutrients that we need and and even the exclusive source of some essential nutrients. And then plant foods are rich in phytonutrients, which we know now, especially in the past two decades, are also very important. And in some cases, those phytonutrients can only be obtained from plant foods, although it's worth noting that there's some recent research suggesting that some animal foods may actually contain phytonutrients in some cases, and that we're only really beginning to understand that. And that actually may explain why some people do better on the carnivore diet than you might expect, given what I just said, that, you know, animal foods are not a good source of some important phytonutrients and then some essential nutrients like vitamin C, whereas we know certainly anecdotally of people who are doing carnivore diet and thriving at least for some period of time. So I, as a clinician, you know, what I would say about the carnivore diet is I've seen miraculous changes. You know, I've seen people who were bedridden with autoimmune conditions or other very serious complex chronic diseases, you know, through the carnivore diet, be able to return to almost normal function. So any, any intervention that is a natural intervention that has that impact is one that should not just be dismissed. I mean, I would never begrudge or deprive someone of the opportunity to get that kind of result, you know, if they're in that place. So I just want to be clear about that. Having said that, that doesn't mean that it's the best approach, even for that particular person long-term, nor does it mean that everybody else should be doing that as an optimal, you know, uh, general approach to health and wellness. An analogy I use, which is a little bit extreme but it gets the point across is like, if you break your arm and you put a cast, you put a cast on and it helps the arm to heal. You don't necessarily keep wearing that cast, right? Nor do you just put a cast on everybody, whether their arm is broken or not. And there's, there's some similarity here. I think where the, I think the carnivore diet in many cases is functioning almost like a fast in medicine. There's a saying that fasting is the cure for all disease. And it's true to some extent. It's really remarkable what fasting can achieve in so many different health conditions. But the problem with fasting, like just true full fasting, you know, water fast, is it's also the cure for life eventually, right? If you if you fast for too long, it's not going to go well. I think what's happening with carnivore diet is it's essentially a modified fast because 
meat and animal products are digested pretty high up in the small intestine and it's then becomes a low residue there's very little residue left over for the colon and the lower part of the small intestine and a lot of the conditions that i mentioned that have benefited from carnivore diet i think are characterized by pretty severe gut dysfunction and disruption of microbiome leaky gut etc so what carnivore allows is for getting you know a lot of nutrition while maintaining a sort of fasted state in the sense of how it impacts the gut and it's like a prolonged gut rest and gut healing protocol that allows people to continue to you know get nutrition during that time that's just my theory i don't know if it's true but i do have concerns for the average person about developing nutrient deficiencies on a carnivore diet over a long period of time especially if they are just eating a bunch of muscle meats like steak and or you know chops and things like that and they're not eating organ meats and they're not eating the fattier cuts of meat that contain glycine and collagen and they're not taking special efforts to eat, you know, maybe a small amount of highly concentrated sources of vitamin C, like adrenal glands or, or even berries or, you know, acerola cherries or something like that. So there are carnivores that are doing it, I would say, very intelligently and with a lot of awareness. But my worry is that a lot of people who just hear about this diet and start eating New York steaks as their only source of food are going to suffer long term. Yes, completely. Or going to a burger joint and just getting the burger with cheese over and over and over. Yeah. Yeah. Not a good solid plan. (laughs) Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. We could chat forever about nutrients. This has been so fun. Where can people find more from you? So my general website with lots of free information, articles, eBooks, podcasts is chriscrosser.com. And my supplement company, Adapt Naturals, is adaptnaturals.com. Thanks for having me on the show, Leanne. It's been fantastic. Yes, yes. Thanks for coming on. And you also mentioned cresser.co slash nutrients. Is that right for that outline? That's a short link for the free ebook on nutrient density. So if you type that into your browser, it will forward to the ebook download page, and then you can just download the ebook there. And that's got tons of information on continuing the conversation that we've had, but then also very clear instructions for how to what the most nutrient dense foods are and how to maximize your nutrient intake through food. Beautiful, beautiful, amazing. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks everyone for listening. And we hope you have a great day. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Chris Cresser today. Again, you can go to cresser.co slash nutrients for that free guide. And I will see you back here for another episode of the Keto Diet Podcast next Tuesday. See you then. Bye. Thanks for listening. Join us next Tuesday for another episode of the Keto Diet Podcast. Looking for more resources? Go to healthfulpursuit.com for keto meal plans, weight loss programs, low-carb recipes, and oodles of free resources to get you going. The Keto Diet Podcast, including show notes and links, provides information in respect to healthy living, recipes, nutrition, and diet, and is intended for informational purposes only. The information provided is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, nor is it to be construed as such. We cannot guarantee that the information provided on the Keto Diet Podcast reflects the most up-to-date medical research. Information is provided without any representation or warranties of any kind. 
please consult a qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding your health and nutrition program. 